Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who have done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hey, lovely people. How are you doing? Hope you're well. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. So this week, uh, I'm really excited to be speaking to Shay Doyle. Uh, Shay has written a really uh, terrifying, if I'm honest, book called Deep Cover, How I Took Down Britain's Most Dangerous Gangsters. Uh, Shay uh, uses a pseudonym for obvious reasons, but I'm as confident as I possibly can be that he is 100% telling the truth. Um, the book is, is published by Penguin. And I know that uh, a great deal of due diligence will have gone in to, uh, you know, fact checking a lot of what he talks about. So I think you're going to find it really fascinating, really, really fascinating. Um, before we do that, uh, go into the interview, um, just talk a little bit about uh, the podcast. As you may have noticed, for those who've been listening for quite a long time, the episodes uh, are getting a bit longer. Um that was kind of a deliberate thing because I do think that there is something there about having the time to really get into a subject in a way that the mainstream media particularly is unable to or either unable or unwilling to, probably more unable to just because of the cost of everything. But I think one of the great joys of podcasting is that you can really get into a subject in a lot of detail. You can talk directly about the issue you know, that, that, that guest is there to talk about. Uh, and you can also go off at little tangents to talk about other issues like, you know, maybe mental health or other other things that I just think bring the whole subject to life. So uh, like everything else, if, um, if you like that, then that's great. If you think the podcasts are getting a bit too long, then uh, please let me know. Uh, feedback's a gift and all of that kind of stuff. Also, maybe just worth touching briefly on the current state of play regarding finding a successor to Cressida Dick as the Commissioner of the Met. Uh, quite interesting, really, that an awful lot of the people who were seen as front runners um, are not putting themselves forward uh, for the job, which is not at all surprising to me. I've got to say, I think it's a massive poison chalice. Um, the front runner, I think, uh, by a long margin, was Lynn Owens, who was the uh, head of the National Crime Agency until recently. 
Uh, she's had some health issues, but it was quite interesting what she said about her decision not to apply for the job. She made it very clear that it was nothing to do with her health and that she was looking for other professional opportunities, which is kind of code for saying thanks, but no thanks. Really interesting. Um, lots of other people who would have been seen as being quite strong candidates who are not putting themselves forward. Um, Martin Hewitt, who's the chair of the NPCC, National Police Chiefs Council. Um, Stephen House, who's the acting commissioner at the moment um, and was previously the Chief Constable of Police Scotland. Uh, my old Chief Constable, Dave Thompson, who's seen as a very safe pair of hands and sort of well regarded nationally, uh, not putting himself forward. And Simon Byrne, who was another name mentioned as being a potential candidate is uh, he's, he's the chief constable of the police service of Northern Ireland and had come from the Met uh, as well as a number of other Greater Manchester very very experienced uh, not putting himself forward either so yeah read into that what you will I think um, there's a collective um, sense of of uh, yeah I'd rather boil my own head than do that job but quite interestingly uh, I got a text uh, this afternoon from Kevin Hurley the uh, force of nature that is Kevin Hurley, who I interviewed on this podcast some episodes ago, saying that he was uh, applying for the job. And uh, good luck to him, because uh, tell you what, um, it's realistically unlikely they get that job. But it would be so nice to have someone doing that job who was really about uh, enforcing the law and catching criminals and giving the public the service that I think they deserve in terms of keeping them safe. So, so Kevin, you have my very best um, wishes and good luck to you. Right, let's get into the interview with Shay Doyle. Morning, Shay. Morning, Ian. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad, mate. Uh, can you see me? I can. I can see a little camera icon with a um, line through it. But uh, uh, just to reassure you, I'm only recording uh, audio, not uh, not vision. So, um... hey, there he is. <laughs> can you hear me? Yeah, got you, mate. Have you got there? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. How are you doing? All right. Yeah, I'm not so bad. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great to uh, it's great to speak to you, particularly um, you know so early in the day since your book was published. And congratulations on that! Really fantastic achievement. Yeah, no, thank you, and same same to you, same to you. I've um, I've not got round to reading yours yet, but I uh, I did listen to your podcast with uh, with Hugh. Just oh, to sort yeah. of get a, get a flavour of uh, where 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 you're coming from, which uh, I'm obviously I read the synopsis of the book, uh, but uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think we're too we're too distant in position, <laughs> are we? Yeah, no, I think we're probably on the same page on uh, on quite a lot of things. So, um, so yeah, so um, where I'd like to go with this is obviously the um, the audience for this podcast um, is probably uh, it's hard to tell because it's hard to know, but judging from the feedback I get, it's probably. 70% law enforcement um, and uh, probably 34%, I don't know, um, that wouldn't make sense, 40% and 70% in, in tell and there's never a mathematician. Um, 
but yeah, probably quite a lot of people who are just very interested in in policing and uh, or maybe have a professional involvement in it in some way. But um, so yeah, so uh, there's probably going to be quite a few people who've got a reasonable understanding of covert policing, but I don't want to sort of assume that. So so where I'd like to go with this really is yeah, um, if we can talk a, a little bit about um, you know your background before you joined. Uh, uh, you know your early days in policing and decision to go into undercover policing um, and then we'll come on to talk about some of the issues that affected you as a result of doing that um, unbelievably stressful work and uh, and then you know your life after the police if that's is that all right yeah absolutely absolutely fine mate yeah yeah bang on uh, and ignore my ignore my legs. I've got. I'm, I'm ready for the gym after after we. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's all right as long as you're wearing. As long as you're not naked from the waist down. No, not, I, not, um... not not naked. No. no. <laughs> so so yeah. So I, I've read. Um, I'm about three quarters of the way through your book. Um, I was trying to speed read it the last couple of days, but I wasn't. But I've got to a point where you're starting to fall out of love with policing. But if we go right back to uh before you joined so you were in the army weren't you yeah yeah i joined the military at 16 years of age yeah i uh, joined an infantry unit so um so yeah i was very much sort of um straight into sort of uh into the fire really you know um yeah proper soldiering you know proper soldiering yeah yeah and uh and you went to northern ireland i believe uh where i come from myself i did yeah yeah my first my first operational tour as a soldier was in uh, south Armagh, oh. uh based at Besbrook Bez- uh in south Armagh, yeah yeah, yeah, no, well, so, um, yeah, and, and did you go abroad at all, uh, when you were in the army? Yeah, I did some bits in the Middle East, um, over there. I mean, I won't say you know, I was uh, involved in some heavy combat or anything like that, but uh, yeah, I did some bits over there. Okay, so what age were you? And you, so your background before that, you came from quite a rough, um, uh, quite deprived part of Manchester, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, the area of Manchester I came from. Is um, you know street gangs, uh, organised criminals, uh, and you know in fact you know criminal families, the very established criminal families, and in fact some of my own family were linked to some of those families, and um, you know um, so it was very very much not the career path that anyone would have expected of me to have taken really, yeah. but in but in many ways was my greatest advantage in policing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so decision to join the police. Um... What, what was that? I mean, I've, I've read the book, um, but people listening probably haven't yet. I'm sure lots of them will. But um, what was it that sort of made you, what was the decision point that, you know, coming into the police, given that you were not uh, naturally a obvious candidate for policing? Well, um, the decision really, I, I, I'd come out of the military. Um, I'd only been out, you know, not very long at all, maybe six weeks. And um, I was just decided that, you know, I joined the military at 16. I've done nearly eight years, and you think the grass is greener, don't you? You know, you think you're missing something. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd met a girl, uh, and we're sort of sick of being away. So uh, my time came, and I thought, you know, I'll take a little bit, bit of a breather from from the army, and um, it's always there for me. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, I was only, yeah. I was only, tw- I was only, you know, 23. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that, and then my, I was working on a building site, hot carrying, um, mm-hmm. and my dad killed himself. My dad, my dad committed suicide. Mm. Uh, which caused one of my old colleagues from the military to contact me and say, uh, obviously, you know, condolences about me, my father. But um, he joined Great Manchester Police and he said to me, look, you know, wh- why, don't you, why don't you have a go? Um, you, 
not that not I'm not that I'm saying I'm better than a building site or anything like that. I'm so you know, it, um, but he said, look, you've got a good brain on you. You know, I'd proven I'd had a good, I'd had a good brain on me in the military. You know, I was I'd been a team leader and stuff like that in the military on some yeah. some operations and stuff. So I had I had a background in sort of leading people and um, decision making and dealing with risk. Mm. And he said, look, you're perfect for the perfect for the police. Mm. And it was just something I never really considered would be for me. Uh, yeah. For obvious reasons, the area I was from, it just wasn't wasn't an area. Just, I think I'm the only only policeman I know from my area, you know, that I can yeah. I can recall. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I, with my dad dying, I needed to be around and on my mum and stuff like that. And because um, I was I wanted to go back in the military, um, mm. but I just thought, you know what, I got sick of lumping bricks up and down ladders uh, onto mm. scaffolding. And I thought, you know what, why why not make my own path in life? You know, why why can't I join the police? Um, yeah. Uh, and I actually joined, I sort of put the application in with little expectation of getting getting in. Mm. I always sort of expected someone to tap me on the shoulder and said, there's been a mistake here, you know, mm. um, you, you shouldn't be here, son, you know. Yeah. Um, but I was always, because, you know, I mean, over the years, betting, betting caused me issues here because yeah. I had family members who had been, you know, some of them quite serious criminals. So I always had to, I was always very, very transparent and honest about it. You know, yeah. I, I never, ever lied about who I knew or what I knew. Uh, and so it, it never came back to haunt me in that way because transparency, as you as you know, is um, it's very difficult to get around when someone's honest and transparent. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's very difficult to catch someone out in a lie when they're telling the truth. <laughs> absolutely, and I had nothing to lie about because you know I'm not my brother's keeper, am I? You know, I can't I can't be responsible for other yeah. people in my life and their actions yeah. and choices and decisions. Yeah, and it's interesting you're looking at the way, and we'll come on to talk about this later on, about the way that the the organisation, the police organisation has changed, and you know, I've written a whole book all about that, but um, there, there tends to be um, uh, a reluctance now to bring people in from the military, There's and a lot of people who would probably be fantastic police officers are put off now because of this nonsensical uh, expectation that everybody either has to be a graduate or, or get a degree when they're in. And, um, and it's interesting, as I noticed that uh, Nottinghamshire Force uh, very recently there is, is now actively looking to uh, target and bring in military people into the police. So it just feels as if everything's going round and round in circles at the moment, you know? It's a massive, it's a massive bugbear of mine in policing. Um, I'm not decrying anybody who's gone out and got themselves an education, higher education or a degree. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but what, what annoys me is I, I find it, you know, the, the police talk about inclusivity mm. and um, um, diversity. Mm. Yet by, by their very own setting that educational standard, they're, they're putting up more barriers to inclusion than, than, than any colour or race or, mm. or uh, you know, there's people like me and many, many others who just haven't got the, the capability to go to university or, 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 mm. or higher education. They just haven't got the family support network. They haven't got the, yeah. the resources. They've got to go out and get a job and support people and families. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're limiting themselves um, massively by setting this bar, you know, mm. and, it, and in many, many ways, you know. I mean, I saw a, a horror of a video that's going around social media the, the other day, you know, of, of a young police officer who, you know, he, he had absolutely zero communication skills. And I've no doubt he's got PhDs and all sorts coming out of his ass, you know, and, um, mm. you know, forgive, forgive my language, but, um, you know, it's, um, <clears throat> so yeah, I, I just think it's, there's people in these communities where I came from who would have all the natural skills of a police officer, 
mm. before you even trained them, you know. And you, once you put that legislation and law training into them, uh, mm. they, they, they've been in challenging scenarios all their life, some of these people, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and it would be fantastic material yeah. um, for any police officer. And like I say, you know, by the time I hit the ground in the cops, there wasn't a great deal I'd not seen on the street anyway. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, and I just think the police are so they're really, really getting it wrong with recruitment, really getting it so, so wrong. Yeah, well, you know, again, we can come on to talk about this later on. You know, this latest, the latest figure of what 5.8% of total recorded crime now resulting in a, um, you know, a, a criminal sort of prosecution is a, is is proof if ever, if ever if ever you needed proof, it's proof that whatever they're doing is not working. Uh, it's it, the whole system is is broken from it feels like from top to bottom. But anyway, we'll come on and talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, so, so you um, go into the police and um, no spoiler alerts really, but uh, you obviously do very well in your early days and you turn into a bit of a thief take, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because um, to me, I just went in with a mindset that you can, you know, in policing, as you know, you can, you can go from job to job and be a statement taker if you want you know, and uh, break off and attend the immediate response job. But I, I made it my business to understand who was operating on my patch. I made it my business to know who my villains were. I made it my business to know who my problem people were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that, you know, in my head, that's your job in the police. You go out and, you go out and deal with those people. Um, and so I would target people who wanted for serious crime, um, you know, uh, and I became very, very adept at doing that and successful at it. But to me, it wasn't it wasn't because I was trying to get myself noticed. I wasn't trying to uh, get myself um, a plum job anywhere. Mm. To me, that's what police should do. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's a basic, basic of policing, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and it seems to have been lost. Yeah. It seems to have been lost. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, again, I talk about that in my book where, you know, there was a uh, culture back in those days, particularly where I was working in South London at the time, where the whole team, the whole team was massively up for it. And, uh, you know, we had big, big shifts in those days, but on every team, there was a hardcore of probably eight to 10 uh, officers who were massively up for it and, and out there day and night um, sniffing out criminality. So, yeah, yeah, anyway, but but yeah, so you, you obviously um, become a very adept thief taker and that then gets you noticed, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and um, just sort of to reiterate that point, um, the reason for that, and, uh, you know, I stand by this. I don't care what anyone at the College of Policing says. Uh, that military background absolutely mm. stood me in good stead for hitting the ground uh, in the police because I wasn't afraid of people. I wasn't afraid of conflicts. I wasn't afraid of confrontation. Uh, I knew how to speak to people. I dealt with risk at a high level already. So all them skills that military people have, are fantastic for the police mm. and that's why within two years of joining the police i was the top lockup merchant on my shift mm. by far mm. you know by far yeah. um and and you know that's not me being egotistical it's just yeah. st- statistical yeah. fact yeah. um you know and um yeah and so because of that i got i got noticed by a very very good old school dci who uh, who liked you know call him old-fashioned he liked police officers who went out and arrested people for crime mm-hmm. yeah and he then uh, he then put you into his organised crime team. So I, I imagine that must have put a few noses out of joint uh, amongst some oh, of the more senior people. Absolutely, yeah, massively, yeah, um, massively did. You know, people like you know, what's this sort of two years sprog just been, uh, you know, gifted entry into this uh, into the organised crime. Even some of the people in the in the in the, in the unit were like, you know, why have you landed here, kind of thing. Yeah. But within three months, 
everybody everybody understood why you know yeah. because um i did the same thing there yeah and to be fair i can remember people like that you know they're not they're not they're they're quite rare um but the you you would see someone uh coming through who was just unbelievably keen they were just a a, a crime detecting machine um yeah. and and they obviously had that um gift um sixth sense or whatever uh, so yeah, it does happen. I have seen it, um, and uh, and very often those people then go on to become some of the very best detectives uh, in the force. You know, um, yeah. so so you then get sort of um, approached. Is it you get approached about uh, undercover stuff? Is it who, who, is it someone kind of basically? It was actually, yeah. So it, it was actually one of the lads in the in the organised crime unit. Um, it was a very very experienced cop, twenty year cop. Um, he'd been around the block, um, detective, and um, he'd been involved in, you know, sort of specialist units from the force units and stuff. And uh, he himself had gone for level one undercover selection. And I only had two and a half years in the police at this point. Mm. You know, I only had two and a half years in the job. Uh, and he pulled me to the side one day and said, look, covert, covert, covert operations uh, are, are um, recruiting for level one UCs. Mm. The unit at the time was for Great Manchester Police was called Amiga. Mm. Um, which was quite renowned in UK policing at the time. You know, they were really sort of um, groundbreaking, uh, one of the groundbreaking undercover units of, of um, UK policing, along with SL10 in the Met. Um, you know, they were, they were the real front, front runners at it. Uh, and he said, look, I got, I got, he got to the end of the, sort of the last, last sort of bits, phases of selection and, and fluffed it. And he pulled me to the side and said, listen, you'd be brilliant at this. Mm. You know, you look the part, you, you talk the part. You basically are the part, and you aren't tainted with too much policing. Yeah, exactly. You've only got two and a half years in the job. Yeah, you aren't. You don't talk like a cop. You don't use policisms. You know, every word is in, uh, no duff, no duff, or whatever. You know, mm. it's I still spoke like a kid from a Manchester council estate, and yeah. I still still do very much to this day to a degree. Yeah. Uh, and he spotted that, and he he told me to get my ass down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because. Um, uh, you talk about you know when you went through the selection process, which is obviously unbelievably rigorous. Um, they then identified that you were highly intelligent and had really high IQ. So you know it's a really interesting point, isn't it? That um, there's a lot of people look down the noses at people just because they speak in a certain way or they look a certain way. But some of the sharpest people I've ever known in my entire life have been cops uh, who probably don't have a single. GCSE to their name, um, but they are super bright, um, and you would not want to be sat on the other side of an interview, a criminal interview, with them on sitting across the desk from you. You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. And um, you know, I think um, got a good sort of. My, my father was in, super intelligent. You know, um, my, my dad was. Um, I mean, my dad again fetched up in care and had a very very difficult life, and obviously ended up taking his own life, but. My dad was very, very sharp, super intelligent in a street level sense. Yeah. You know, he knew how to deal with people. And uh, I, I was, you know, even, even some of the, the, the you know, my mum, my mum come from a big Irish family, nine brothers, you know, some of who were rogues. Mm. And they were very sharp in their own sense, in a criminal sense, you know. Yeah. And I'd sort of been around these people and I learned how to, uh, I learned about psychology, mm. you know, as, as a young person. I learned about the psychology of fear. I learned mm. about how to be streetwise. Mm. I learned how to deal with bullies. Mm. And, um, you know, I learned that information was king. Information was key. Gather mm. information. On, I was, and I was doing all this stuff as a kid, yeah. you know. So, so when, it, when it came to training about undercover, which is all the stuff they want to be instill in you, 
I landed and was going through role plays and I was sending the role players out with an headache. You know, <laughs> the, the, you know the, the, the lead instructor is a very, very, you know, we, we came on to be very, very close, a guy called Christy Vincent that I was talking about in the book. Um, he was like, you know, uh, the king of undercover policing effectively in the UK. You know, I don't think I could think of a more successful level one undercover. And he yeah. pulled me to the side and said, um, you know, People are saying, where, where have we found this kid? Like, you know, he's, 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 he knows how to do it now without any training. You know, we could send him on a job now kind of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. I just had that natural ability. And it was all because all my life I'd been picking up skills and learning these attributes. And, you know, yet coupled with, you know, very, very fortunate to, I think, been handed a decent mind from my father. So it was, all, it was a perfect storm. I was perfect. And, you know. You definitely, and you definitely look the part. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm only recording the audio, not the video, but uh, don't take this the wrong way, Shay, but you're a scary looking fucker. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if, if I saw you coming, uh, if, I, if I turned up in an address and you came to the door, I'd be making a tactical retreat and I'd be calling for a lot of backup. I'd be saying this bloke's going to, he's a big fella and he's going to kick the shit out of us, you know? Yeah, listen, absolutely, you know, and, and, uh, you know, thank. Well, I'm not sure whether to thank you or not. But, uh, <laughs> Backhanded compliment. But, but yeah, no. But, but you, you're exactly right. You know, it, it, I, I don't look like a policeman. You know, I, I, and you know, I, I boxed all my life, and and you know, I knew how to look after myself. And you know, I, it, it's often been said I look more like a criminal than a policeman. You know, and without doubt, that coupled with all the other attributes I had made me a very, very um, good candidate for level one and couple work. That's brilliant. So you talk about that in your book about the selection process. I mean, it sounds uh, what were the, I can't remember the numbers, but in terms of the numbers who went into that process and the numbers who were successful, it was a tiny, tiny percentage, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and as you as you'll know, Ian, you know, um, I mean, it's changed now, which is why I sort of talk more freely about it. Um, at the time when I went through, it was only the Met and GMP who could train level one UCs in the country. No other force in the country was had, had the the authority to do it. Uh, and so, you know, every force would put people, would good, put people, candidates forward to be a level one UC and they'd go through different, different, you know, graduate, gradual um, selection phases and intelligence testing and psychometric testing and psychological testing and, you know, all of the bits and pieces that I talk about in the book. Um, and, and there may be 400 people nationally. Mm. trying to get onto the Met course or the GMP course at the time, you know, from yeah. you've gone to open days just to sort of hear some information about it. But obviously you'll have nat natural wastage, people who mm. won't want to follow it through, mm. people who just wanted to sky for an afternoon because they've got to go and see what it's all about. And then you'll have the people who sort of embark on, on, on the road who fall by the wayside because, you know, for whatever reason, they're not, they're, not, they're not sharp enough, they haven't quite got those attributes. But again, I always am always pains to say, doesn't make you a bad cop or a bad yeah. detective because you, you're not suitable for undercover work. You know, um, I've met many, many more detectives and police officers who are much better at stuff than normal, you know, more more um, uh, normal police police work than I ever was, you know. Yeah. Uh, it just happened that I had, I was, I was I was good for this role, you know, I was certainly good for this role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just so, probably, probably, probably worth just explaining for people who are listening who don't understand the difference between level one and level two. So, so level twos are, are generally used for test purchase, aren't they? So they'll be going out and buying drugs on the streets from known drug dealers, uh, evidentially producing those as an evidential exhibit. And then uh, at the end of that operation, those drug dealers are then scooped up. Or it might be, you know, stolen goods from a, uh, you know, a, a hooky, uh, you know, stolen somewhere who's set up a dodgy, you know, cash converters kind of shop or something like that. 
Um, but the level ones, obviously, they are uh, a, a whole different ball game altogether, isn't it? Um, so yeah, so so and and it's fair to say as well, isn't it, that in terms of level one UCs, and again, I'm not giving away any trade secrets here. This is uh, you know, it's all publicly available information. They will be put into. They don't all look like you, do they? They they will oh. be put into all sorts of different types of scenarios depending on their look and how they come across and their knowledge and experience don't they absolutely absolutely you know um I, i've met and heard of and uh, even worked alongside ucs a very very different profiles to me you know my profile was very much organized criminal armed robber you know um that that type of, of criminal but there is there is uh, undercover cops out there who can fly helicopters Mm. who can, um, uh, you know, are experts in fine art, you know. Um, I, I, don't get me wrong, they're very niche skills. Some UCs have very niche skills that aren't particularly, you know, going to be called for every day of the week, you know. Mm. Uh, they, they, them skills are, are quite niche uh, areas to have. Yeah, but to be fair, you know, the type of type of UC I was, it was, you could, you could put me almost into any job, really, mm. you know, in, a, in the criminal world. Mm. Um, as the criminal... You know, yeah. a lot of UCs will have, they'll play like businessmen or semi, 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 sort of semi-criminal. I was, I was quite different in, in, in the UC world. I know it sounds strange probably to people who don't understand the world. I was 100% criminal. Yeah. I didn't have to pretend to be a painter and decorator. You know what I mean? I was 100% criminal. And not many UCs can pull that off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I can. I, looking at you, I can definitely, I can definitely believe that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um. So, so obviously you do really well in your training uh, and you get through that process uh, very tiny, one of the very tiny percentage you do get through successfully through that training process and you go back to your uh, sort of normal job on the organised crime unit and, and uh, but you get called up pretty much straight away, don't you? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, passing level one UC selection is tainted with the fact that they sort of give you the hard word and say, doesn't mean you're badged up in our unit you're going to become a permanent fixture in the unit you know we might give you a call to give someone uh, a, a supporting role on an operation or something uh, uh, but yeah no I, I did quite well on the course um I sort of came you know without blowing me on trumpet you know it's all so it's, it's all I can support all this stuff I say with fact uh, I, came, I came top of the course and um, yeah, yeah, yeah so I, I I got back to my unit my uh, organized crime unit and within 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 the by the afternoon I was told Pack your shit up. You go into uh, you go into Omega. You've been posted. The ACC's posted. So uh, yeah, I was back in the morning. Yeah, brilliant. And, and so, you know, so not, just, not even not even not even three years in the police at this point. You know, not is. even three years in the cops. So just to dip stamp this, what what year are we talking about here then? Uh, so uh, be about two thousand and six. Two thousand six, right? So about two thousand and seven. About two thousand and seven. So so obviously um, a lot has changed in that time and we'll probably come on to talk about some of those changes in, in a little bit but uh, at that time uh, you get pretty much thrown right in to the deep end don't you um, so describe your your first and uh, deployment which you talk a lot about in the book which I've got to say mate it makes the flipping hair stand up on the back of my neck reading it it's just bloody terrifying so so yeah talk about talk about your first proper deployment uh, well, just quickly, um, obviously my first primary role uh, on a long-term operation was infiltrating Moss Side in Manchester. 
Um, but I had done operations prior to that, uh, yeah. which, you know, I wasn't just chucked in directly at the deep end into that long term community, uh, criminal community infiltration into, you know, an area like Mossad, which is synonymous with gun and gang crime and some serious, serious people there, you know, who've done a lot of uh, a lot of historic murders and young young men being shot in the street and stuff like that. And that's why I was sent down there undercover. But I had done some operations before that, short-term operations, and even some operations against um, corrupt police officers. Right. Uh, one, of, one of the jobs I did was against a corrupt police officer um, who we successfully got, got, got you know, with the, with the tactic. Mm. But yeah, no, then then um, the police had obviously been dealing with, you know, gun, massive gun crime issues in Mossad and gang crime. Uh, and lots and lots of stuff negatively impacting on that community. Um, so we decided we want to we want to put an undercover there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, as I say in the book, Ian, with with hindsight, uh, you know, I went on to become a, a detective inspector running my own organised crime unit. Would I have selected me to go into that operation? Absolutely not. You know, it was it was completely foolish in a way, professionally ridiculous to put me there. Yeah. Um, but uh, I did it. I did it. You know, I was I was in my, I was in my mid twenties. Um, I just flown through this this you know very rigorous selection procedure. Uh, I had you know I was a young in service police officer still, mm. um, and so I just felt that um, it was the challenge I wanted and craved and needed. Yeah. Uh, and so I hit the ground running and went into Moss Side in Manchester uh, as uh, Mikey the Arm Robber. And uh, basically managed to convince very, very serious criminals. That's exactly who I was. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. So just backtracking on some of those issues. Um, yeah, I mean, I must admit, when I when I heard that initially, I was just absolutely horrified. I just thought, how, who thought that was a good idea? You know, and, and I know that that would not happen now. Um, but the idea of putting someone um, who's from that neck of the woods, kind of, okay, maybe not exactly more side, but you know what I mean? It's... Yeah, I weren't uh, far away. You're yeah. not that far away. Um, uh, you've got family who who are you know well you know sort of integrated into Manchester life. You've been a cop there, albeit for not that long, but even so, you're still going to be mixing with some people who are obviously criminals. Um, I mean, God, what you know, what could possibly go wrong, eh? You know, I mean, it it just strikes me as being. I mean, I don't know who did the risk assessment for that, but um, it strikes me as being a. a nothing short of madness really I, t- I, t- well, I totally agree now you know with, with um, lots lots more professional uh, experience under my belt i look back now what, i mean and i went on to sio um uh, I, w- I went on to sio uh, an undercover operation so and uh, you know be involved in the, the selection for a uc and i just, I just you know with, with rank and, and experience i was like what the, what on earth were the force playing at Mm. No matter what my will to do the job was, there, there is a layer of supervision in the police who, who allegedly have more experience in this world, allegedly mm. have more knowledge, mm. uh, and literally went through every layer of, mm. of, of authorization to get to get me on that plot. And I look back now and think, what 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 were they thinking? Yeah, what yeah. on earth were they thinking? And it did every, everything you talked about there. The compromises in terms of family associates, uh, criminals I dealt with as a uniformed police officer, criminals I dealt with in organised crime, all of that came back to bite me on the operation, mm. all of it, and yeah. which I detail in the book, you know, yeah. quite vividly. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is what the police, are, you know, I, I struggle now with um, 
the police still don't understand that I carry the burden of the operation today. It still impacts how I go about my day. Still impacts mm-hmm. where I go. Still impacts, you know, potentially my family. Yeah. So, you know, I still carry that. I still carry that risk and still carry the burden, even though the operation is now over a decade old. Yeah, and it's fair to say that um, you did a, a superb job. Um, you did, you, you know, your work resulted in some many, many people uh, being, um, you know, prosecuted and imprisoned and lots of uh, fantastic intelligence that went on to, to prevent all sorts of things, I'm quite sure. Um, but just just talk about the, the stress of living in that, living that lifestyle day in and day out, because we're not talking about, um, you know, popping in and doing it for a few hours, three or four times a week. You were literally living that lifestyle uh 24 7 weren't you yeah no um this and this is the difference between you know your level one and your level two in the in the place and i certainly don't decry anybody at level two level it's a very very dangerous and arduous job um but the level one it's it, it is every day you are you are you have become your criminal persona if you like your legend you are living that legend uh and you can't slip away from it um you know i was there on plot every day overnight 16 hour day de- deployments from the morning in the gym out with you know my criminal associates in the afternoon uh, the pub uh, then night you know sometimes in nightclubs with them and, and you know this is the difference between your level two and your level one i became close with, you know, in their mind friends with them mm-hmm. i developed close friends and um, close friendships if you like with them. Mm-hmm. criminal associates you know yeah. they, they want to do uh, uh, social things with you as well as criminal things they don't just want to serve me up with a ten-pound bag of drugs. They, they want to come out and drink with me, or or eat with me, or introduce me to their family. You know, and it's um, it's really, really sort of very, very intrusive. Yeah. Um, but it's got to be, you know, it's got to be proportionate. And you've got to be making that that dynamic assessment all the time. Is what I'm doing here proportionate? You know, I've had uh, you know criminals introduce me to their children and stuff yeah. like that. And yeah. you know, you start to think, is this now proportionate? Is yeah. the level of their criminality proportionate for me um, being so intrusive into their life? You know, and I was always very mindful of that. And I was always able to, I think, make the right judgment, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And because the level of criminal I was up against were very, very serious. You know, yeah. uh, they, they had access to firearms. They could, uh, they, you know, in some cases, the intelligence was they, they routinely carried firearms. Yeah. Uh, and these were people I would sit in cars with, you know, um, and make up uh, what, as we call, theatre in the trade uh, to, to go on little errands and places like that with them and to get them talking. Yeah. to get them talking about their criminality and to, yeah. to just ingratiate myself even further. Yeah. Uh, and so the stresses and strains of that, doing it day in, day out, you know, for, for 12 months plus, you know, it's very, very, very taxing on you. Very, mm. very taxing on you. And you need, you need good support of management. You need strong management who, who um, you know, dare I say it, give a shit about you. Yeah. Give yeah. a shit about your safety. And not just you, Ian. Your family, your family are paying the price for what you're doing as well. And I don't think there's enough goes on around the family in yeah. it, it, of level one UCs yeah. um, for supporting them and yeah. including them, yeah. including them. You know, I'm not saying give them operational detail, but just in, make make them feel included. Yeah. Uh, because the divorce rate and the the split up rate and the, the personal issues that go with level one UC policing quite often are more difficult for the, the UC management to, to deal with than the, the operation in many cases. Yeah. But it, it, it's because they fail to support around that area. They yeah. fail to support. And I still, I, I know for a fact, they're still failing to support around that area. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, what's well, interesting, you your your girlfriend at that time, you talk about her turning around to you, you were having a bit of a sort of um, a, a, a bit of a tiff, and she turned around to you and said, the police don't give a fuck about you. Um, and, you, you know, it's an interesting one. We'll come back to that later on, you know, that whole idea of to what extent, and this is what I want to really try and understand, to what extent is it ever ethical and acceptable to put people into these situations and i'll just let that question hang there you know and we'll come back to that later on but there is something there about it's not just about the proportion the the proportion the legal the the, the legality necessity and proportionality of the tactic uh, in terms of how it impacts on members of the public and criminals and their families it's about how it impacts on you as a human being with um you know who has to then at some point in time get back on with your life again isn't it yeah absolutely absolutely um and you know for me i was battling and, and you know i talk about this in the book i was battling on two fronts here because i had um a new management team coming into the into the unit who none of whom none of whom okay one or two of them may have passed the level one course but they never deployed Mm. They've never they've never been on a live operation in their lives, mm. uh, and for some reason the force deemed that because they passed the level one course, they they, they knew everything about undercover policing, but they've not bought a ten pound bag of heroin between them. Mm. You know they've never stepped foot on a flock live in their life. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's a, a precursor for good management, but mm. you know I think I think certainly at a DS level and a DI level, uh, if, if someone had been an operative, they could have much more empathy with with the stuff you're dealing with on plot. Yeah. Uh, and um, um, I think, you know, maybe, you know, as you get higher into sort of chief inspector and super level, that, that becomes less important. Mm. Um, but then you've got to have uh, someone who understands corporate policing and has empathy for that person who's putting themselves at risk and, you know, mm. um, the, the impact on their family and their mental health and their well-being. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, I was battling on two fronts. And actually, do you know what, Ian? I always say this, that the villains were the easy part for me. Mm. Deal, dealing with poor managers within the police and uh, uncaring managers and unempathetic managers mm. who couldn't see things from my point of view because they never walked a mile in my shoes yeah. um, was was tougher for me than dealing with criminals. They, they were mm. actually the easy part for me, the criminals. Oh, God. So so looking at your deployment in Moss side, I mean, some of the stories that you tell literally made me feel physically sick. And the ones that made me feel like that were when, when you would get a, a call to go and, and you wouldn't know what it was about, but you'd have to get in a car with someone and you'd, they'd be driving. You have no idea where you're going. Uh, you don't know whether he's carrying a firearm, um, uh, what the intention is. Have you been rumbled uh, yeah, and compromised? Is he taking you somewhere to um, put a bullet in your head, um, uh, taking you way out into the wilds of you know, Cheshire and all this kind of stuff. I mean, what's going through your head and those, those, I mean, you must be going running through multiple sort of plans in your head thinking, okay, if this happens, I do this, blah, blah, blah. So what's going through your head at that time? Yeah, well, the, the, it, in today's policing, they'd love me to sit here and tell you about the decision-making model, wouldn't they? You know, um, which <laughs> me and you know is a lot of bollocks. Uh, in that situation, you know, okay, it's not a lot of bollocks. But what, what I mean by that is, I was doing everything on that decision-making model, mm. but without the model, you know, I was, yeah. I was naturally thinking of every permeation of conclusions that can happen, mm. every single sort of um, 
trying to read read his body language, read micro expressions on his face, read the tone of his picture and his picture of his voice. Had anything changed? Any subtle changes I could detect in his attitude and demeanour towards me from previous meetings? Um, you know, just trying to because it's all gathering information to assess the risk dynamically. Yeah. So uh, I'm thinking, you know, is he going to shoot me? Is he carrying a firearm? Uh, have I said something wrong? Rerunning conversations in the past that I'd had with him, you know, where I could have, have, have I had a word out of place? You know, even if it's just on the phone, uh, trying to pinpoint something I could hang my hat on to say, yeah, he ain't happy with me. Yeah. And that might not just be because he rumbled me as a cop. It might be because of, he, he thinks I'm a threat as a criminal now or something like that, you know, because you, you're dealing on, there's, there's a threat from two, two sides. To be quite honest with you, the safer one is that he thinks you're a cop because he's unlikely to want to shoot, yeah. you know, on that. But if he thinks I'm a threat as a criminal, then, you know, he's probably much more willing to, to, to put a couple of rounds in me, yeah. you know. So yeah. all the time, as a level, a good level one you see anyway, should be dynamically risk assessing all the time, every single moment of the day. And it's all about, you know, those, those skills about, you know, human behavior, yeah. you know, assessing human behavior mm. very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, and that's what I, I find that really fascinating, the way that you had to try and walk that line between, on one hand, being a credible criminal um, who had the, for want of a better word, uh, bollocks to walk into a gang uh, club on a very, very dangerous part of Manchester and to be credible, but not so... Um, alpha that they see you as a threat absolutely and, and that's a really really tough one isn't it it's absolutely a fine line to tread and you know what so many cops get it so many undercover cops get it wrong they get it wrong uh, because they think you can sort of walk in and high five everybody and it just doesn't work like that you know the type of the type of criminal I played I was very very subtle I, ne I never told anyone I did anything I never told anyone I was this big shot that big shot that big shot this of anything because you know what, good organised criminals don't, they don't want you to know the business, mm. you know, so in many cases, I, I became almost a bit of an enigma, mm. and it, I, I saw almost presenting myself as a little bit of an enigma, mm. uh, I never ever pushed to be anyone's pal, uh, hi, can I be your friends, I never mm. did any of that, you know, mm. I let them come to me, uh, I made myself a bit of an enigma, I, I mm. presented myself with certain props, a certain way I would behave, and certain attitudes I had to certain things and they got it. They bought the yeah. they bought the package in the end. And they and in yeah. the end they came to me. I didn't go to them. They come to me. Yeah. And a massive, I don't want to give it to I mean, it's a fascinating read. And anybody listening to this, I'd really, really urge you to um buy the book. It's a fantastic book and really fascinating. But um but you we work uh, very closely with a, a female uh, UC who is to you know to the onlooker your girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and and that that's massively helpful, isn't it? In terms of, um, you know, giving you the second second brain, the second pair of eyes and ears, as well yeah. as allowing you to come and go, uh, you know, because you know what I mean. So yeah. I think it, I, I suspect it would have been almost impossible to do that if you'd been on your own. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, first first of all, I mean, she was an absolutely superb operator. You know, she was an absolutely superb operator. Um, she just got it like me. It's like me. You know, she just she just got undercover work uh, and she got people and she was, you know, very, very charismatic. Uh, and uh, people would flock to her, to be honest with you. You know, mm. they'd flock around her. Um, and um, she absolutely was a fantastic firewall for me. Uh, she gave me every reason for not to want you know, anything. I, anything I didn't want to do, I could say I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to upset her. 
and people got it. People got it because she was so charismatic. And um, yeah, no, she was a, a fantastic sounding board for me. And, you know, as well, she she would drip feed in things that I would never say as a, as a criminal, you know, she and she played her role to perfection. She was absolutely superb at her job. Brilliant. I've got this mental, uh, I've got this mental picture over in my head. I can imagine all blinged up and uh, loads of, uh, yeah, lots of design, designer gear on and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you've got it, mate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to be fair, you know, we looked the part. We did look the part together. And, um, you know, like Beauty and the Beast used to call us. So, <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So um, uh, so your period, that deployment in, in Mossside um, kind of comes to a, a kind of a, a natural conclusion, I suppose, as all of these things have to at some point, don't they? Yeah. Uh, and you sort of hand the baton over kind of to a number of other sort of peripheral UCs who, you know, uh, that kind of gives you, I suppose, the opportunity to sort of slip away. So um, what does that feel like, you know, when you then uh, effectively cut yourself off from that life? Is that is that a big relief? Do you, sigh, do you hear a big sigh of relief? No, no. Um, I'd love to say you did, but uh, because of the way it was managed, the exit from that operation, you know, I dedicated my life to that operation for the best part of two years. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, my, my personal life had taken a huge hit and a big massive toll as a result of it. Uh, new management came in with new ideas. There was personality clashes with me and them. And so the way they, the way they removed me from the operation was, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not saying it wasn't the right time, but it was poor how they executed my removal from my exit strategy from that operation, you know, very, very poor. And I think, you know, having been, having went on to be a manager, it is not the way I would have operated in a million years, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, no, it, it it was my baby, that operation. It was my baby. I dedicated my life to it. And um, I, I, you know, I, I became so, so driven to get these criminals and get these guns off the street. And, um, I wanted, I just wanted to carry on achieving more. I wanted to go, I wanted to go bigger every time, you know. Mm. And my own unit were putting up barriers to me to breaking that 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 ceiling into the next level of criminality. Mm. You know, I, I had the opportunity to really break the ceiling and get higher and higher up the criminal ladder. And they kept putting barriers in my way all the time, my own management. Yeah. And um, it's very very frustrating when you're as driven as I was at that mm. point in my life. Yeah. And 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 you know, dare I say it, as skilled as I was, it's mm. very very frustrating when you think you've got people who aren't as skilled as you making yeah. decisions that you think are flawed yeah it's a really tricky one um i i, I don't i you know i wasn't part of that operation I, I don't know the people involved um and i've never i've never been a uc i've never uh, i've worked with them um but i've never done it myself but i suppose uh, you've just got that strike that balance between operational uh, the value of the operational sort of benefits that are being derived uh which are significant in your case aren't they but then i suppose the longer it goes on for and the higher up you go the higher the likelihood of compromise isn't it absolutely and and you know what with hindsight i do believe it was time for me to be pulled away from that operation it was time Mm. uh but it was the execution of that that was poor um and so um yeah that 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 was the issue for me that and that they're the issues i raised in the book I, I knew myself it was time for me to come away, but the execution was poor. And, and that, that, that was stood up by the, the mess that a lot of the UCs, the peripheral UCs made. 
when they came in, you know, they made, mm. they made a bit of a cock and balls of it, you know, um, mm. and that was because the management, again, were poor and mm. not listening to um, someone who'd been on the ground and not, not just survived, had thrived, mm. you know, on myself and, and the female UC, you know, they just, mm. they just discarded our information like it was, you know, like, like we'd just sort of just been take a statement down there or something. It was ridiculous, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you 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 uh, you you go off and do a couple of uh, sort of other little jobs here and there. But then you get sent into another sort of long longish term deployment in in Cambridge, isn't that right? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, which is interesting, isn't it? Because it couldn't be. You'd think on the on the surface of things that you couldn't have two places more on a light, uh, more different uh, for for English there, more different. Um, and um, and it was interesting. You got sent into a very very deprived part of Cambridgeshire, um, where it's just like a den of iniquity. The way you describe it in the book, doesn't it? Yeah. Every every town, every city in this country has got areas where there is a uh, a criminal financial um, uh, exchange of commodities going on every single day of the week. You know, a lot of people live who you know live live from criminal criminality um to support their their benefits you know mm. it, it's a fact of life and um you know that that, that criminal uh, black market is alive and well you know mm. on on many levels not just drugs stolen goods you know um the, the dodgy skyboxes or whatever it may be you know it's it's alive and well and a lot of people that's how they live their life day to day you know yeah. just just to make ends meet some of them no they're not big flash criminals a lot of them some of them just making ends meet you know yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, no, I went into this operation and I actually thought, if I'm honest with you, Ian, you know, I'm going to be, as I say in the book, but having, having been the sort of uh, the high-end £60,000 driving uh, designer clothes wearing, uh, gun-soaking, allegedly armed, you know, high-level armed robber, uh, running around with, um, you know, really nasty boys who, who spend the weekend in Marbella, you know, and all that kind of lot, yeah. to, to, this, to this operation. I thought it was a little bit beneath me, mm. I, egotistically, and I was very wrong. I'm trying to get to the point that I was actually very, very wrong mm. uh, because Cambridge uh, was very, very challenging, very, very challenging. Um, and not because the risk of being shot dramatically reduced, which was mm. great. You know, it, it, mm. it, it helped me sleep better at night. But um, my God, it, I never had to, I never had to ingratiate myself into the criminal community. They just had me straight away. As soon as they opened my mouth, I was Mikey from Manchester. You know, um, and they literally just, I, my phone would not stop from day one. Um, I literally, you know, I, I bought, I think I bought over a quarter of a million pounds worth of stolen property. Um, you know, um, Rolex watches, diamond rings, um, cars, motorbikes, you name it. And I got in with everyone from the traveling like community. A one man, you were like a one man eBay in Cambridge from you. Yeah, but but again, you've got to you've got to make sure that you aren't creating that crime wave. You know, yeah. you've got to make sure that you're not exacerbating that crime wave. Mm. And the fact is, this if they hadn't come to me, there was a, a whole string of waiting handlers to do it. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. which upset the apple cart with some people. You know, there was a there was a really high level handler down there who really got the hump with me um, because I was taking all his business. You yeah. know, and um, he sort of came, he used to come down to I had a lock up. I need to come down having a look and whatnot. And uh, I thought, I've got to get rid of this bloke somehow, you know. And the fact is this, if I was Mike in a criminal, he'd have got the hard word, you know. Yeah. In, the, in the criminal world, he'd have got the fucking hard word and told to fuck off, yeah, you know. Yeah. But I can't do that. 
I can't do that as as, as my kid replacement. So yeah, I've got yeah. to do it. In a, I've got to do it in a roundabout way. That's not not doing that, you yeah, know. Yeah, and yeah. I had certain strategies to, to do things like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it did make me laugh because people were bringing you all sorts of stuff, weren't they? Some of the all the bagheads turning up with their nicked pit pedal cycles, like looking for the next ten pound of crack, you know. Um, Absolutely, everything from stolen you know, from, Subarus. Yeah, st stolen Subarus from 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 bloody you know. Bike, bikes that were wrecked to super bikes. I mean, I bought a string of stolen super bikes and, um, you know, uh, cars and Subarus and, you know, all sorts of bloody stuff. And uh, that operation, I took it from street level, crack addicted people, shoplifting crap uh, on a daily basis up to their, you know, the, the guy I put away, um, one of the top targets, he he just got off an operation. He just got off a, a charge at Crown Court. Well, he just got off a, a trial. Where he was allegedly the gunman that fired 30 rounds from an AK-47 into some a drug dealer's house. Yeah. So that's the level of target. I took it from there to there, top to bottom, like you know. So yeah. um, and, and everything in between. Yeah. Uh, and there's some really quite funny stories on, on there. I mean, um, uh, I don't even know Cambridgeshire, but there's some American forces bases based around there. That's right. So yeah. there's quite a lot of American military activity around there and American government activity. And uh, I bought this laptop one day and. Um, my, my cover officer hurriedly rings me and says, if you get hold of this laptop, you need to tell us straight away. And I went, I fucking got it here. I've got the laptop here. He went, you're joking. He went, it's just been done by a CIA, a CIA agent posted here to, to, to Cambridge. He's, he said, what's just been done? And I went, what time was it done? He went, it's been done in the last half an hour. So I've got it here. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's oh, fantastic. So, 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 yeah, yeah. They're, funny, they're funny, those American bases, aren't they? When I was on my driving course, uh, when I was in the Met, uh, as we all did, we used to stop there for grub sometimes. And uh, it was at RAF uh, Mildenhall and Lake and Heath and all these places. Yep. And uh, yeah, you go in there and you walk in. Uh, it's so weird. I don't know if you ever went through the gates, but when you go in through the gates and you go into the um, restaurant, um, you pay. You have to pay for everything in dollars. Uh, and it is literally like you are in America. You know what I mean? Yep. You go, it's, it's like literally an American diner you know, yeah. with baseball on the TV and everybody's in there. Is, you know, it's just the weirdest thing. It's like you literally one, yeah. minute you, one minute you're driving at high speed around this, this sort of, you know, rural kind of country lanes of sort of Suffolk and Norfolk and all these sort of places. And the next minute you're sat in some American diner asking if you want your eggs done over easy. Whatever the hell that means, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not, and, and I have, I've, I have, I have been in one um, in, in, down that area. You're exactly right, and I also remember it in um, the uh, Kuwaiti desert when I was over there as well. We had, we had um, uh, the Americans pop up with that, and you know, anyone fancy a Burger King, you know, in the, in the Kuwaiti <laughs> desert? So yeah, so yeah, it was great. Uh, so yeah, they did, they did things right. The, the Yanks, like I'll give them that in terms of food. <laughs> so, um, so obviously. You start to sort of fall out of love with the UC uh, department, don't you, Ryan, sort of after that. And it all sort of goes a bit um, downhill, doesn't it? They basically decide that your days, that you're, uh, you're, you're no longer going to be doing that. So is that, to what extent do you think was that motivated out of just a personal dislike of you? Uh, or much of that was just to decide looking out for your kind of welfare and that you needed a break? Yeah, I don't think any of it, you know, I, I'm sure if you got them on here, they'd give you a very different side of the story. And, you know, I'm not foolish enough to think that um, mm. um, they wouldn't give you a different side of the story. Um, but I can only give you my version of events, can't I, you know, and how I saw it. Um, and, um, you know, the fact is this, um, 
I'd just come off the operation in Cambridge. I got, uh, you know, I spent six weeks in the dock giving evidence behind um, the screen. Uh, every single person that went up against me went to, got convicted and went to jail. I uh, got judge's commendation. Uh, and, you know, I'd gone, I'd gone from my home force and represented the force with a, new, you know, with a different force and absolutely smashed it. Mm. You know, um, I'd absolutely smashed it. I'd smashed smithereens, this operation they wanted me to do. It was much more than they ever expected it could be. Mm. And you'd think you'd come back, you know, not expecting flag-waving and bunting and bugles, but a, mm. a little pat on the back saying, well, well done, Shay, you know, would have been nice. Mm. But um, the damage was done with the management, you see. And I, and I have to hold my hands up here, you know. Am I, can I be an obstinate, difficult person if, if needed? I can. Mm. I can be challenging to supervise. Mm. But here's the thing. Who do you send to do that type of work, Ian? Do you send me, who can handle it? Or do you send some woke little yes man, you know, yeah. who, who's going to go, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir? It doesn't work. You know, the very nature of the beast is why I was good at it is because I had, I had that in my locker. You know, I had that yeah. character trait. And yeah. I, I never saw it as a weakness in me. I saw it as a weakness in management that they didn't know how to manage that and handle it. Mm. And I think for me, they, they actually needed the development, not me. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably a good time to come on to talk about, because obviously you go on to do all sorts of other things and we'll talk about your exit from the police a little bit later on. Um, but I just think it's an opportune moment to just think through the whole nature of undercover policing so putting aside your kind of issues or difficulties with your management at that time just just thinking about undercover policing generally so as you know there's currently a major um review going on I'll just put my specs on because otherwise i can't i can't read properly that's yeah that's me age um, so, uh, and for those who are listening and don't know what I'm talking about, um, I'll just very quickly uh, talk about. So, there's the undercover policing inquiry, and I'm just looking at their website now. The undercover policing inquiry was set up in 2015 to get to the truth about undercover policing across England, Wales, since 1968, and provide recommendations for the future. So, it's been running now for for you know seven years. Uh, it was set up by um, that person we all love to hate, uh, Theresa May. And um, uh, it is, uh, for anybody who's listening who doesn't understand what started that, so basically my old department, Special Branch in London, had a, had a department, a Special Demonstration Squad, um, and the National Public Order Intelligence Unit also had a sort of a similar capability of long-term undercover officers uh, infiltrating uh, activist groups, some of whom were probably fairly peaceful, others less so, depending on which type of group they went into. And then there was all sorts of disclosures made which started off, I believe, from um, Kennedy. What was his name? First name? Uh, Mark, Mark, Kennedy. Ken Mark Kennedy, that's it. Um, and, and since then, there's been all sorts of hair-raising, horrible revelations about sexual relationships with women um, during those uh, deployments, uh, some of whom bore children, God help us. And um, there's been an absolute, um, you know, outcry about the whole use of undercover officers generally. Um, so before we talk about whether we should have undercover officers or not, what's your thoughts on, what were your thoughts on all of those revelations, Shay? Yeah. Um... 
Well, first of all, you know, I find some of that behaviour absolutely abhorrent mm. and, and actually and absolutely uncalled for. You know, um, taking sort of, uh, you know, you uh, see names from the ch- graves of dead children and stuff like that. It's, it's just uncalled for. It's stupidity. It's not required. You know, it's um, it's um, very very stupid practice. Um, you know, it's just I don't understand why it's lazy practice for a start, uh, and you know, just incompetence, absolutely incompetence and abhorrent. Um, and you know, having relationships with females, yeah, you know, it's it's a lack of management oversight. Uh, they've not been managed properly. Uh, those UCs have shown little restraint, um, and you know. You're right. Some of the groups that they would have been involved with, um, you know, may may have posed a threat to them. But many of them, you know, what the, the worst the, the the worst consequence they would have got if their cover was blown is they might have got ignored in the pub that evening at the meeting. You know what I mean? It's uh, mm-hmm. you weren't dealing with ultra violent groups in in many cases. So the the proportionality of what they did is completely blown out of the water. It was it was completely disproportionate. To, to the level of target they were, they were up against. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I, I think I've got to make a differenti- differentiate here between the kind of work and unit I was in and what they were in. I was very much serious and organised crime, mm. serious, organised and complex crime, you know, um, um, and those type of UCs in the, in the, in the Special Demonstration Squad and the, the MPIOU, quite often they, don't, they, they can't cross over into my world. They, they wouldn't have the profile for it, you know. They wouldn't have the the um, the a lot of them wouldn't be robust enough for it, you know. And I'm not decrying them, saying I'm any better. Courses for courses, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so very, they're sometimes quite often a very different different animal to what I and the, the likes of my colleagues might have been, yeah. as yeah. you see. Um, so there is there is a very very different type of people around their worlds, and um, but ultimately, I think the blame boils down to management, you know. Um, Sound like I'm kicking management here, don't I? You know, and I've worked with some very, very good leaders over the years. So, you know, I've worked with some very, very superb, skilled senior leaders in policing who I massively professionally respected. But you can only, at the end of the day, they 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 take the they take the exams, they take the money uh, to to guide and manage these operations and manage people. And you can only say that that's where it's fallen down. Mm-hmm. There's not been enough oversight. There's not been enough intrusive oversight, mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, personally think you know any of those operatives that took themselves and got themselves in any in, in, in old practices mm. there should be consequences for them there should mm. be consequences yeah i mean it's it's a it's a strange one and i'm not going to i'm very aware very conscious of the fact that this uh inquiry is sort of ongoing and probably will be for some time so i don't really want to sort of get into the uh rights and the, the wrongs of you know individual cases or anything like that because that would be wrong to do that but yeah. Um, it does strike me that it's naive in the extreme to for someone to be put into a position where they're having to effectively live a double life for years, potentially years, but then not to have a not to be in some sort of a relationship. It would be very strange, wouldn't it? It's it's quite normal, isn't it, for you know, uh, whether it's boyfriend, a girlfriend or a gay relationship or whatever, it yeah. just seems seems to me to be naive to have thought that that was never going to happen because, you know, it, it's a, it's about maintaining cover as much as anything else, isn't it? Exactly. And that's exactly why, you know, every, every sort of long term operation I, I did, we built into it that I had a, a female partner, yeah. uh, a, a, you know, a, a UC. 
a UC playing that role. Uh, and it might, they might not be there every day. They may dip in and out. But yeah, when I needed one to evidence that I had a girlfriend, I yeah, could yeah. do that with, with a, a colleague of mine who'd come along and play it, a female yeah. UC. Uh, and again, it's, to me, it seems absolute tradecraft basics, mm. not being adhered to, you know, um, a complete lack of oversight and a complete lack of skill in some cases yeah. uh, and, and a, a lack of a lack of moral fibre, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lack of professional curiosity on the part of managers there, isn't there? Um, to Absolutely. Say, you know, so... Uh, is it that they knew? Is it that they turned a blind eye? Is it that they didn't know? It's 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 hard to imagine that they didn't know, isn't it? But as I say, the the inquiry's ongoing, and it'll it'll come out with its conclusions in due course. But it brings me to the the sort of more general point, really. Given that, given the massive hoo ha that has been around the un- undercover policing inquiry and the damage that that has done to the tactic, I suppose, and uh, the risks that people like you put yourself into and the cost that that has on you psychologically uh, in, in all sorts of other ways the question for me I suppose is is it any longer reasonable or justifiable to even have level a level one UC capability I suppose that's the question for me uh, in short, it's, nece- it's absolutely necessary. Mm. It's absolutely necessary. But the lessons from the past have to be learned uh, and applied rigorously. Mm. Um, and the need- there needs to be a real overhaul in-, in how we do it and how we manage it uh and we, how we look after the welfare of those people and how we manage their onward career progression when they leave leave undercover policing uh because at the moment i do believe we're getting it very very wrong still you know i do s- still speak to people who, who've left that world after myself and no longer in the police and sort of got more up-to-date knowledge around it and i know for a fact that mistakes are still being made uh, i do but at the end of the day there are people in this country, and it isn't all about. I think I think the general public think it's all about going buying drugs. You know, it, it isn't. There's, there's a terrorist. You know, the terrorist threat to this country. Um, you know, firearms threat to, to people on the street. There's people being uh, children being uh, abused sexually, physically. Uh, all those issues that me and you know about that go on in society. That um, you know we have to deal with day in day out. The UC tactic, um, if it's managed appropriately, managed strongly managed with with skill then it's a still a hugely effective tap tool to have in the police armory mm. and i think for me to say no we shouldn't have it uh would be a huge huge mistake mm. but yes we need to learn from the lessons of the past and and do it do it properly targeted and uh, effectively yeah so really i'm not saying by the way that i don't think we should have level one UCs I just I think for me the jury's out on it a little bit because I think if you look at the we operate now within a whole a completely different environment uh policing wise than we did even back in 2006-7 whenever you started out on that journey um the organization is has been uh, decimated by you know a combination of political interference and uh, and cuts the organization has just been continually um you know criticized uh, rightly sometimes rightly sometimes wrongly um 
we've got uh, social media now, we've got a whole different level of accountability that we probably didn't have kind of, you know, even sort of 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Um, the risks to UCs now are way greater in terms of the ability to compromise them through internet um, investigations. So if, if I was a, if I was a um, you know, organized criminal now and I was unhappy about someone, I would get some, I would get probably a private investigator to start having a proper look at them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the ability to do that now with the internet is much easier, isn't it? So I suppose it's just a case of weighing up the risks to you as the UC and the organizational benefit, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, and, and that's exactly um, what I say. I think um, the days of what I did, going living in my side for, you know, year, two years, whatever, I, th I think they're gone. You know, um, I think they, they, they're probably gone. Um, I think it's, um, it's all about making it really, um, sorry, uh, it's got to be supervised properly and, and deployed properly. And undercover policing always should be the last resort. It is the last resort policing. Every other methodology, I say, either needs to have been discounted because it's just not, not, not viable to deploy it or it's just not, um, not been effective. Yeah. But I do agree with you that in, turn, in today's world, technology's moved on and advanced so much that we could probably achieve with a technical deployment much quicker the evidence or intelligence that we require than deploying a human asset. Yeah. And so um, I think um, the, the need is less. Mm. But for me, with correct, strong and experienced management and oversight, it still should be a tactic within the, the armory of the police. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think you're probably right. Um, I, I just feel very, I think the risks are just getting greater and greater potentially. But, um, but let, let's just come on to talk about your, uh, so you had a, a, a sort of a, um, a falling out of love with policing combined with, I suppose, um, some serious, quite serious emotional and mental health issues, which then resulted in you um, being medically retired. So are you happy to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I think um, just to sort of backtrack a little bit, Ian, if you've got the time. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah, yeah, I've got plenty you know, of time. I, 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 you've probably maybe not got to that point yet, but I was heavily involved in the uh, sort of semi-covert side of the manhunt of Dale Cregan, uh, who right. killed uh, two officers, you know, and I was involved in the immediate aftermath of that operation. Uh, and then subsequently, um, for 18 months after it, sort of immersed in taking down his crime group and uh, uh, criminal associates. So I spent almost two years of my life immersed in, in that operation. It and, was that just was, and that was as a that was as a detective rather than a UC, is that right? Yeah, it was a, it was a, as a detective in a sort of a semi sort of semi sort of covert intelligence gathering role, really, but right. very much very much on the ground uh, uh, as kicking doors as well. Right. Um, it, it was it was an unusual role that I was put into, which um, you, you'll come on to read about in the book, um, because you know the manhunt. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail about about this incident because I don't like to give it too much of a platform, if truth be told. Hmm. But um, you know, I, I detail bits in the book that you know you've got a very very dangerous offender who's hmm. killed already on the run, uh, used grenades on the mainland of the UK for the first time ever, hmm. other than outside Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and you've got you've got a criminal. You know they don't really come much more dangerous than this. You know than what we were hunting. And so you've got a criminal as well that had resources, had mm. criminal contacts internationally and nationally. Mm. Uh, and that's become and he had criminal know-how and he had discipline. Mm. Uh, so you've got someone who's very, very difficult to catch. Mm. And so covert tactics were going nowhere because of his, his savviness and his, and his awareness of police tactics. Yeah. Uh, so a, a very small group of us was put together. Who, funnily enough, Ian, we're all ex-military. Right. So make of that what you will, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and we were put together because we had no problems going dealing with serious gangsters, serious mm-hmm. criminals, toe to toe if need be. And um, so that's I was I was handpicked to go in a little team like that, which is very very unorthodox in policing, uh, yeah. but it was very very much so an unorthodox time. Mm, um, I remember it very well, yeah. And um, so needs must, and um, you know. And you have to say, you know, the modern world of policing now would they'd look at it and everyone would be finger pointing and saying that's the wrong thing to do, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, but um, if anyone else has ever hunted a criminal of that, of that level of dangerousness, then, um, mm. you know, I'd like to see how they did it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a lot, but lots and lots of things should have been learned from that. And yeah, and I was involved in the immediate aftermath. So that left a huge mark on me. You know, mm. lots, I've got lots of issues around that operation and things that should have done, should have happened, didn't happen, or things that did happen were, were in my opinion, wrong. Uh, and it really, really mm. compounded my view about the almost perverse view of what leadership is in the police, mm. um, that operation. And it really impacted my mental health, massively impacted my mental health. Yeah, well, I was reading, before we started our call, I was reading uh, a, a tale of woe. I think that's the only way you can describe it, um, which was a... Um, uh, 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 a legal challenge let's put me specs on here again um, a legal challenge by an ex uh, GMP officer um, uh, Peter Pete Jackson who was the former head of GMP's major incident team and he did some uh, whistleblowing I think is probably the, the most appropriate uh, term to highlight issues in that investigation and in some of the decisions that were made and and then obviously Greater Manchester then went into special measures for kind of, kind of entirely different reasons. And it, I suppose the whole thing just paints a very unhappy picture of GMP at that time, really. Yeah, I mean, um, well, I mean, and, and this is no secret because I talk about it in the book, Pete, Pete is an old boss of mine mm. um, and a very, very good, um, very, very good experienced senior police officer, you know, from the ground up, a bit, bit like yourself, you know, did it from the ground up. Mm. Um, you know, learned his trade before he started to learn, to lead others in it. Um, which for me, we're not, are always were always the best bosses I ever had. Mm. You know, uh, and Pete for me was a superb, superb senior leader in policing mm. who had the moral courage to call out wrongdoing. Yeah. Um, you know, and um, and there was many others aside from Pete. You know, I wasn't particularly vocal about it. You know, I wasn't somebody that had a large voice. I was a detective sergeant in GMP, mm. so I wasn't somebody that had a powerful voice as such. Um, so, but there were other cops around Pete calling out the same failings, mm. and you know, you, you only have to look at some of the failings around GMP. Quite often, it's the same senior leaders that had their hands on it. Mm. Their, their fingerprints were on every every fuck up, mm. you know. And mm. how many times can you keep dropping the ball as a senior leader without without consequence, you know? Mm. Mm. Uh, and you know, there's lots of lots lots and lots of stuff gone out in the public domain about why GMP are in special measures, um, but there's lots of lots lots and lots of stuff 
that has to be hidden from the public of why they're in special measures. Mm. You know, there's a much bigger story there. Yeah. You know, and, and many, 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 many cops were completely lost. I mean, you'll have to look at the retention rates at GMP. They were losing experienced detectives and experienced police left, right, and centre mm. because the leadership team were horrendous. Yeah. Were frankly horrendous. Yeah, it's a very unhappy. It's a very unhappy tale, and um, you know, it's always tricky to understand. You know, the truth of these things, particularly whenever it's reported in the media. Um, but but clearly it was a very unhappy ship at that time and uh, there was lots of people playing uh, silly games by the signs of it. Um, but just to sort of move on, I did ask you a question about the, the mental health issue. We'll come back to that, but just as yeah. well, while we're on that subject, because it sort of just fits nicely with what we're talking about. One of the issues I make in my book is is my unbelievable levels of frustration at some of the poor leadership um, uh, or management, call it what you want, in policing that is that has now resulted in the organization nationally being in a right bloody mess. Uh, and I'm not saying that all senior police officers are terrible managers, leaders, because they're not, because I've worked for lots and lots of fantastic ones, fantastic ones. But totally agree. Um, totally where, agree. What, what, what do you think that's probably a massively loaded question now, isn't it? I'd make a terrible interview, wouldn't I? Um, <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you think is, has gone wrong with police leadership? Uh, I think um, we've leaned to academia. Hmm. We've leaned to academia um, being a, uh, a, uh, an attribute that's going to give us leadership material. And um, you know what? It's one strand of it. You know, I'm not saying uh, academics has its place in policing for sure. Um, but unfortunately for me, uh, well, not unfortunately at all, not, not unfortunately. Leadership in the police, you are dealing with the highest levels of risk. You are dealing with people's lives in, in your hands daily. You're dealing with children at risk. You cannot learn that at university. You cannot learn it anywhere but in the police. It is the only place, it is the only organisation in the world that you are going to learn how to deal with that properly. Mm -hmm. Of course, you've got, you know, the, the social services, things like that, where they'll, they'll learn about that world, but they, they don't deal with it as dynamically as we have to do in the moment quite often, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and the, the sort of diverse risk that we carry. There's mm -hmm. no other organisation carries the level of diverse risk we carry as the police. Mm -hmm. And you can only learn it by doing the job. Mm. It's as simple as that. And we fast-tracking people who haven't learned their trade. And then we expect them to lead people. And it's almost setting them up for failure. Mm. It's setting them up for failure. And unfortunately, there is a lot of these people who have come across, um, they have a sense of entitlement. Mm. They, they've achieved the rank through whatever ways they've achieved it by going on projects and uh, you know, uh, being mentored by the right individual. Uh, and they then have got themselves through an exam uh, and they, they achieve some rank. And then they stroll around with that rank because if it's their, it's who they are. And they mm. emit this, uh, they try and hide their, their professional incompetence mm. by the shield of rank. Mm. Um, and, you know, like yourself, Ian, I've met some very, very competent, highly competent and professional senior leaders in police who I respect massively. Mm. And I could name, I could name many, I could name many. Mm. But unfortunately, I do see more and more coming through 
who are fast-tracked into areas that they have absolutely no right being in, mm. no, none at all. Mm. And I totally, totally disagree with this direct entry inspector stuff. I, I disagree with direct entry superintendent. I completely disagree with it. And I would have, I'd quite happily have that argument, you know, that debate with, in an open forum with anybody at the College of Policing. Uh, and I could give you, I could spend the next two hours telling you why it's uh, it, it's, it's failed and it, and it will continue to fail. And they are failing their staff by doing, by having leaders like this, they're mm. failing the staff. Mm. Uh, and it all links into every other area of policing that's failing, retention, recruitment. It's all to do with this idea that academic, an academic workforce uh, in policing is a better workforce. It isn't. Yeah. Well, a 5.8% um, you know, criminal justice outcome level for total recorded crime. If that was a business, it would be in the hands of receivers now, wouldn't it? And, yeah. uh, you know, it's an absolute disgrace, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, it's a complex picture, you know, and I talk about that in my book. There's other factors there, you know, certainly the government haven't done us any favours. Um, but yeah, it seems like a perfect storm, doesn't it? So you, you pull the plug financially. Um, and you also have a culture of uh, bullshitting your way to senior rank. Um, yeah. And uh, it's interesting. You look at most large forces, you look at this, the people who do, you look at the sort of the individuals who do the who are regularly on the going out to deal with the worst, the, hard, the most difficult stuff. It's the same people, isn't it? Again and again, it's the same people. It's probably a, a five or 10 percent. Who are carrying um, the sort of seventy or eighty percent, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and I feel desperately sorry for PC sergeants and inspectors who make up what is it, ninety-seven point five percent of the police officer workforce. Um, so the people we're talking about, um, you know, chief inspectors and above, you know, and I was one of them. So you know, at the end of the day, I'm not sort of sitting here trying to pretend that I was the the best chief inspector the best superintendent in the world you know I probably wasn't I was just, I was good at some things not so good at other things but but the difference is I knew what I was talking about because because yeah. I'd done it you know yeah. and you know you you, you look at uh, PC sergeants inspectors and they must be absolutely tearing their hair out sometimes wasn't they yeah absolutely absolutely you know uh, in GMP you know you, you, the culture was disgraceful you had very highly experienced time-served cops and detectives and sergeants and inspectors who, you know, they, they, they wanted to spend their careers at, opera, at operational policing level being cops. They didn't want to move into the politics side of it, um, you know. And so, but then you could quite clearly see a divide opening. You had, you had cops at GMP, uh, and I'm sure it's echoed across other forces, who were, you know, DC, DS level, DI level, who were far superior to people who were above them mm. in terms of, in every way, professionally superior morally superior yeah. they, they they experience they out experience them and you, you literally they, you could see them with their head in their hands the yeah. buffoon telling them to do something when they knew it was wrong and, and when you've got that when the balance is shifting too high that way you mm. your force is going to fail it, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't take an expert in policing to um to understand that the force is going to fail when mm. you when you fill it with um people who haven't done it at running it it's going to fail you know, yeah. the thing that really uh, slightly depresses me at the moment is these companies have been set up to coach people to get through not just not just promotion processes, um, but the actual uh, entry point at, you know, uh, recruit the recruitment stage. So you basically you can pay money to go on a course to teach you how to bullshit 
and there was there was a time when there was a time when that was the sole preserve of probably chief inspectors and above wasn't it um whereas yep. now it's almost at every rank so what you're doing is you're you're gaming the system aren't you you're 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 yep. you're, you're teaching people how to talk the talk right from the very first entry point into policing whereas you know when i joined and, and probably i'm sure when you joined as well there was a there was a rigorous process to get in and then and then in your first two years if you were an idiot you were you were going to get weeded out and kicked out of the job whereas it feels to me as if there are people getting into the organization now who um we're teaching we're, we're recruiting bullshitters to become yeah. even better bullshitters as they go through aren't they yeah absolutely so, totally totally agree and you know i hear some horror stories from uh Colleagues of mine who were involved in recruit the recruitment process, you know, interviewing people and stuff like that, you know, anecdotally, sort of, um, that, you know, a pal of mine, he's not, he's retired now, so I'll openly say it. You know, he he was a, a former DI who um, was involved in the recruitment process, and uh, he he basically failed everybody one day. I said, there are, there's no none of them are good enough to join the police. You know, they, they need to go away and develop. Uh, and he literally was told, no, no you are you are passing three of them you are passing mm. uh, and um so yeah look the standards for me are, are poor i hear i hear that the standard of training is poor mm. i hear um that you've got you know cops who haven't actually got a lot of experience themselves now training people yeah. um and and i understand they're in a very difficult position because there's been a skills vacuum away from the police you know they're losing a lot of people uh, a lot of people experience retires and doesn't want to come back now um, you know, people want to get out the force and transferring away, um, which surely to God, somebody, you know, this is why people like you and I come out and speak, mm. you know, because we, we hope that we can be the sensible voice of policing. And we're not we're not the fashionable voice of policing. You know, I, I've had lots and lots of people. They won't engage with me and, you know, on social media and stuff like that. I, I think I've frightened them to death, to be quite frankly. Um, but, um, you know, they won't engage with me. Um, and because I, I don't, I don't, I don't um, subscribe to the uh, unicorns and rainbows view of policing, you know. Um, but for me, it's not keeping the public safe. And I, I honestly believe if the police continue on this damaging path that they're on, they're going to get worse. It's yeah. going to get worse. And well, I think... They'll become irrelevant, unfortunately, won't they? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, you're talking before about should the UC, UC tactic continue? In five years, you won't have anyone who's capable of doing it. Hmm. You know, because well, nobody, um, everybody will have left within four or five years. Every, everyone, everyone will have left who, who is capable. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the nobody coming through just won't, won't have what it takes. Mm. You know, this won't. Um, it's a very sweeping statement, I know. And I'm sure there is some very, very good recruits out there. I'm sure there is some good people who join the cops still. You know, I, I've, got, I've got to believe that. You know, I've got to believe that. Mm. You know, and I don't want to sit here and think like I'm a, I'm a police basher. I loved the police. Mm. I loved my job. I loved going out, catching criminals and keeping people safe. Mm. I dedicated my life to it. Uh, and I loved mm. my colleagues. A lot of them were fantastic. The best people I know are police officers. Mm. The best, bar none, the best people I know are police officers of all ranks. Mm. Um, and I'm not a police basher. The reason I wrote my book, the reason why I can be outspoken on social media at times is because I loved that job so much mm. and I cared so much about it mm. that I hate to see what's happening. And, I hate yeah. it. I, I hate yeah, to see well, it. You might as well. That's exactly that's exactly why I wrote the book, and that's exactly why I do this podcast. And you know, I've got a deep love for policing, but it's like 
this feels to me like having to give the police tough love sometimes because because there's so much nonsense being spoken about policing over the last sort of 10 years or so and and it's it breaks my heart to see it in such a mess and you know i was interviewed on lbc um by uh nick ferrari last week it was a it was a bloody nightmare. I'm never going to speak to him on the radio again. He was a bloody nightmare. Was um, <laughs> wasn't in, wasn't interested in anything I had to say about anything. No. He just just wanted to keep bloody wittering on about some ridiculous incident he'd seen at Clackett Lane Services. But um, but yeah, it you know it, it's stressful though. You know, putting myself out here like this is stressful and uh, sometimes. Um, but you know what? The the overwhelming feedback I've had over in fact, hundred percent. I haven't had a single who got I've gone and done it now, haven't I? I'm gonna get some right shit now, aren't I? But hundred percent of the feedback I've had via email, social media, um, messenger, uh, via the the you know, everything, reviews on the book, reviews on the podcast, everything has been ninety-nine point nine percent super positive. Um so I just think there's a real hunger out there. There's a hunger to hear this stuff um, and, a, and a deep sense of frustration by the public at, at, at seeing the police service turning into this. Well, I don't think people even know what it's there to do anymore, do they? No, exactly, mate. Um, and, you know, I've had, like yourself, you know, lots and lots of cops contact me via social media uh, who have said to me, please carry on saying what you're saying, doing what you're doing. Your book's mm. fantastic, but mm. I can't publicly support you yeah. because if I do, I'm worried that the police will come for me, a boss mm. will come for me. But I am here. I, I, there is, we, we are, a lot of us are behind you yeah, yeah. and a lot of us are shouting for you quietly. And, you know, yeah. and, uh, and uh, you know, and I've had, maybe I had two or three bad reviews about my book and I could probably identify who those individuals are. The people mm. I call out in my book, mm. with, you know, in, in false names. Um, crack on, you know, they, they didn't bother me when I was in the police, they certainly don't bother me now, you know, and, um, but 99%, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm active on Instagram, Shado UK, you know, and, and, I, and, I, and I say it as it is, you know, I've got no fear of, of the consequences because I'm only saying what's right. I don't, yeah. I don't put out information that's incorrect, you know, uh, anything I put out there, I'll back up mm. uh, and I'm more than open to. Send me a message. I'll have the debate with you, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. to a degree until it gets boring for me. But then, um, <laughs> but then, um, you know, um, but, yeah. but, you know, so, so look, uh, as many, you know, m many, 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 many hundreds, in fact, numbering the hundreds, cops have contacted me. So thank you for speaking out about mental health crisis in policing mm -hmm. uh, and about your story, because do you know what? It makes me think, I felt I've been, I've been silently struggling with things mm -hmm. that you've, you've mm. verbalised in your book. Yeah, I've been yeah, silently yeah. struggling with those same things. And if it can happen to someone like you, who did all that crap you did, yeah, my yeah. God, it's all, right for, it's all right for me to go and get some help, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's, um, that, there's that statistic I heard the other day, um, something like one in five police officers is struggling with undiagnosed PTSD. Um, yeah. And you look at the levels of suicide, you look at the levels of uh, anxiety and depression, uh, people... Hemorrhage, the organization hemorrhaging people just unable to hold on to people massive rates of attrition i mean it's not a good picture is it so so you you ended up being medically retired isn't that right yeah i was medically retired um it all it wasn't an overnight thing for me in i describe it in the book as a slow dripping tap 
Mm. It was, and it was, it was, I'm not a fan of labels, but I was, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Um, you know, again, I'm not a fan of labels, but mm. it was just everything, all mm. the operational stuff I'd done, all the stuff I've been involved in. And, you know, a huge side of that for me was the, the absolutely malicious management I've been subject to over mm. the years that had compounded, you know, me questioning my own sanity at times. Why, why, why have I put myself at such risk for what reward? Mm. You know, you know, you know I, I, yeah, yeah, I did help me members of the public, but my own side felt like, I felt like my own side were against me at times. Mm. I honestly felt like my own side were against me at times, my own management, my own senior leaders. I honestly felt like they were, they were act- actively, maliciously against me, mm. you know, um, and it wore me down in the end. It absolutely mm. wore me down to the point that it impacted my personal relationships. I lost my relationship. My hypervigilance oh, t- t- completely lost control of it. I completely lost control of it. All I saw was threat. And, uh, you know, um, I, I just absolutely got me to the point of, I lost everything in the end. You know, I lost my house. I lost my uh, my relationship, and the job the job was making me ill. It was making me iller and iller and iller. Mm. Um, and it's taking me time to sort of get back on on an even keel where I can even function properly, really. Mm. Mm. Um, so I, I had a spectacular breakdown, which I detail in the book. Mm. Uh, and I know for a fact there's lots and lots of cops out there going through the same shit that I did. You know, yeah. I'm also mindful that there's cops who'll take the piss. You yeah. know. Um, as with any walk of life, mm. they'll see a bandwagon, jump on it, and use it for their own their own end. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm all for the genuine people, the genuine yeah. people who are suffering. That's the cops I want to speak for, and I want to. Uh, if my book can help them, they're the people I want to talk about. We mm. all know there's the cops who will swing the lead. It's the same ones who ring in sick every bloody week and whatnot, and yeah. they'll jump on any 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 bloody poster on the wall. They'll say that's me, you yeah. know, and um, they're they're not the people I want to. Have. I'm, I'm not interested in them people. Yeah. I mean, and you you often find it's the same cops that keep the job running anyway, yeah. you know. Yeah, uh, right. I don't know. There's some. Uh, there's you know, we've all anybody who's been in the police for a long time will will have seen uh, you know people uh, being unbelievably stoic for a very long time, um, unbelievably effective at work, and then they have a spectacular breakdown of some description and. Certainly, I remember when I was a DS in Coventry uh, years ago. Oh my God, it was like, um, yeah, there was all sorts of stuff going on with 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 people on the CID in terms of um, drink and, and mental health issues and um, alcoholism and and then you know when I was a DI and I joke about this in a previous podcast episode uh, when I speak to my old chief superintendent, used to be my chief superintendent when I was an inspector. Um, in Birmingham and we were joking about it but I tell you what it wasn't bloody funny at the time um, it was like Heartbreak Hotel the inspector team was like Heartbreak Hotel you know what I mean yeah. I don't think I think I think 70% of the inspector team myself included were going through separation and divorce and and having all sorts of you know we're all on antidepressants and god knows what else you know it was a bloody nightmare um, yeah. so and I and I think it's brilliant that now people are you know, you're absolutely right. There are some piss takers out there who who will who will see an advantage to them in playing that card. But we all know the the genuine ones. You know, you you'll always know the genuine ones, won't you? Um, yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, I've got a friend at the moment, you know, he's a, he's a 20 odd year detective sergeant uh, who has spent his entire, virtually his entire career in sort of core CID policing. So, you know, actually doing some work in, you know, actually doing some hard work his entire career. Uh, he's a fantastic detective. Hmm. One of the best I've ever worked with. Uh, and he is now off sick because his blood pressure is, his, his doctor said, you're going to have a heart attack. You hmm. are going to have a heart attack. He's only, he's only around my age, hmm. um, you know, uh, in his early 40s. And um, so he's had to take some time out, which he, yeah. he hates. He hates having to take time out because he feels like people think he's taking the piss. Yeah, you know, um, but he's, he's genuinely going to have a sap. And, he, and he's, his wife has sat him down and said, look, you've got to leave the job because yeah. it's killing you. Yeah. I don't want, I'd rather have you here stacking shelves at Tesco yeah. and being, being happy and less stressed mm. than running around as a detective sergeant because it's going to prolong your life for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, there's, he is not unique. That is, that, that's being replicated around the country, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was just uh, some night. I mean, oh, my God. I look back on that period in CID. It was a bloody nightmare. And um, and the job, you know, going back to your, your your girlfriend at the time's point, the job doesn't give a shit about you. The reality is very often it doesn't, unfortunately. They say they do. They say all the right things. You know, they'll say, you know, we take your welfare uh, seriously and they'll, you know, of occupational health um, departments. But you know, ultimately, very often they just as long as the job just as long as people just keep on turning up to work and doing the job and 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 soaking up all of that trauma and dealing with all of this shit that goes on in life, uh, they are quite happy. You know, they'll, you know and, yeah. and unfortunately, it's only when people actually properly break that they sort of try and do. But very often it's the, the horse has bolted by that stage, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And in a way, uh, in a way, in a way, in a talk about the poor management that I was subject to uh, undercover, it actually to work to my advantage because mm. when I came away from undercover policing, what I, what, I, what I decided to do was I'd been burnt. Mm. I'd been burnt by poor leadership, bad mm. managers, and I'd learned that the police don't give a shit about me. So mm. I actually used this to my advantage to, to get where I wanted to be in the police. And mm. um, because it was, um, you know, uh, quite a robust individual. He wasn't, he didn't particularly uh, count out to anybody through my career. And um, I didn't, I didn't get starstruck in front of the ACC. You know what I mean? It didn't bother me. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I could talk, talk from a position of experience with people. Yeah. And because I knew that they didn't give a shit about me hmm. uh, and I wasn't trying to um, ingratiate myself to, to bosses to get anywhere. I became quite a dangerous animal in the place hmm. because I didn't want anything of anybody. Hmm. I was just simply there to do the job. Yeah. And um, certain senior leaders saw that and loved it, and that's why I ended up having running organised crime units. I got um, I got asked. I, I, they made me a, a, a detective inspector without even passing the exams, uh, mm. acting because I was so uh, professionally competent, mm. um, you know, um, and quite you know fairly, fairly unique in, in in the force at that point, you know, mm. um, because I became. I knew they didn't give a shit about me. I did. I weren't. I weren't trying to ingratiate myself to anybody, so I didn't give a shit. I just, I just, I was purely there to, to do the operational work, and that was it. And some bosses love it, some bosses hate it, you know. Yeah, a good friend of mine um, told me a funny story the other day about it's not policing; it's a completely different organisation. And um, he's just joined this new uh, organisation, um, and uh, super experienced. 
and uh, and clearly was being perceived that wasn't uh, playing the game enough, you know, going to the right things, being seen, sucking up to the right people, yeah. um, all of that kind of stuff. And um, and and someone pulled pulled him aside and and said, uh, you know, I think you need to understand that. Um, uh, you know, you need to certain things you need to go to and you need to be seen and you need to be speaking to these people and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, there's something that you need to understand is I don't give a fuck about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was brilliant because it's just so liberating, isn't it? You know, it's like, let your work, let your work do the talking um, rather than, um, you know, bullshitting and sucking up to people, you know? And that is exactly the attitude I had in placing. And uh, and I'll tell you something here. Um, whenever it went really fucking wrong, it was me they come knocking on the door of me and a select group of people who they came knocking, and we all had that same attitude. Um, none of none of us, uh, you know, counts out to anybody. And when it went really wrong, there was a select group of people who went get them in to come and sort this really horrible problem out for us, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, uh, and that, that's, that's the way, that's, that's the career path I chose to take, Yeah. you know, and continued it now by writing books and stuff. Yeah, so, uh, so just to, just sort of, just to wind up a little bit, um, so uh, without compromising your current kind of life or whatever, um, what, what, what does the future look like for you? What, what, in terms of, you know, are you going to do more writing? I mean, it'd make, it would make a great film. I, I, I don't know, has, has anybody discussed that with you as a potential film rights or anything like that? Yeah, there is, there is a number of media, media, um, big production houses interested in the book, to be fair. Um, and I have had several meetings um, in talks about that, preliminary talks, you know, um, but, uh, you know. Can I, have a, can I have a cameo role? Can I come on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Role? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll find you a cameo role here. No problem at all. Um, if, yeah, if, you need, if you need a really, really uh, devilishly handsome, intelligent, you know, Irish bloke, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Uh, well, look, look, uh, yeah. look no further. Look no further. Yeah, well, you know, I, 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 do you know something, Ian? I'm sure I'm, I actually have a role in mind for you, to be fair. So uh, maybe <laughs> something we can discuss off the podcast. Uh, I think I think you'd play it to a T. But, um, and he's a good bloke as well. So, yeah. It's not, no, um, it's, it's not Mr. Bean 3, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not Mr. Bean 3. But, yeah, no, there is, there is some talks around that. I, I, I don't want to sort of uh, jinx myself by by sort of saying it's a done deal because it's far, far from a done deal. It's just, mm. but yeah, it's very nice when some very, very big production companies come, come knocking and want to talk to you, you know? And um, so that that's really, really interesting for me. Um, and uh, there's some people want to make a documentary about some stuff as well um, around the undercover stuff. Mm. Uh, so there's interest around that. And uh, also, yeah, I, I am writing. I think I've got the book for, a bit of a book for writing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of moving into the world of novels and uh, sort of based around, you know, stuff that I can't share publicly, but yeah, uh, yeah. Could work around in a novel, you know, to make it yeah, realistic. Yeah. And stuff. So, so yeah, you know, I, I get, I get the old laptop out and, um, stuff and and but you know what my main focus is Ian uh, now is genuinely my own mental health managing that because it'll be lifelong yeah I yeah. have to manage that lifelong you know I still yeah. say I still take medication Ian I still mm. take medication to this mm, day mm, mm. you know and um, I still have to put strategies in place to manage the risk to myself not not you know physical risk from the operations I undertook but but my own mental health I have yeah, to yeah. safeguard my own mental health and I have to be yeah. sort of kind I know it sounds a cliche but I have to be kind to myself at times yeah definitely around certain things um, but my major drive 
um, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to be one of these that thinks you can step in and I'm here to save the world. Mm. But I do think it's important, cops like you, cops like mm. me, stand up and talk mm. about the mental health issues mm. of the policing uh, yeah. and talk about how the leadership are exacerbating it and how um, if we don't look after these people, yeah. the society, society loses. You know, yeah, the yeah. cops, the police and society loses. So I am prepared to put my head above the parapet, even though it's going to get yeah. shot off by certain people. Yeah, to talk yeah. about the mental health crisis and and you know I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I don't care what personal criticisms I get I know it's important enough and it needs people like me and you to, to do yeah. that yeah definitely and uh, and I I um, I wrote her on my website tjfbook.com um, I, I wrote a uh, a blog which got so many people uh, such a great response from people uh, and it was back in October last year, and the title of the blog was uh, "Those Whom the Gods Wish to Destroy, They First Make Mad," and and it was all about the way that PC sergeants and inspectors are being treated, um, not just by politicians and the media, but by their own so-called leaders. And and uh, it was the most read of my blogs by far, thousands and thousands of people, you know, and. Um, yeah, and I do think I do think it, it's like a it's like a it's like an act of um, cruelty, really, um, that you're taking people who joined to try and help the public, to try and make a difference, to try and keep the public safe, and are just treated just appallingly badly. So, so yeah, in terms of your point around the mental health issues, you're absolutely right. I, I've been very honest about my own you know struggles uh, periodically in the past, and 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 probably in the future at some point. You know, I'm okay at the moment, but you know, I'm. I've been through it and I know that it might come back again and that's, you know, I'll just deal with that when it happens, but you're absolutely right. You have to look after yourself, understand that you're, we're all fragile creatures. We can all put on a brave face, but you know, when, when things aren't going well, number one is talk about it, um, get help um, and don't think you can solve it on your own because you won't, you know, so. Yeah. Totally agree, totally agree. Can I ask you a question before yeah, we wrap up? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, what, what's your view on direct entry? Uh, inspector and superintendent, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I think, it's, I think superintendent is a terrible idea, um, uh, and I think it, it's, uh, it's, given that I was a superintendent for, you know, for the last three years of my service, and I was having to make some big calls, I was doing a lot of uh, stuff around uh, covert authorities and... Yeah um dynamically you know managing risk critical incidents all that kind of stuff that stuff you don't learn that stuff you can't learn that stuff in the classroom you've got to live it you've got to understand what the implications of your decision making uh, are um so i think direct entry superintendents is a terrible idea um and i and i believe the attrition rate for them is, has been very high unsurprisingly um the direct entry inspectors i have come across some excellent direct entry inspectors um but I've also come across some terrible ones. Um, I think it is possible to do it if you're the sort of person who's willing to listen, is willing to surround, who's good at identifying the people they need to surround themselves with, um, some really good sergeants, listen to the really experienced PCs or DCs or whatever. And I, th I think you can, I think you can make that work, but, but no, direct entry superintendents for me all day long is a really bad idea. Yeah. Just, just to sort of pick up on that point, and um, when you say, you know, you're saying you can make direct entry inspector work because they might put good sergeants around them. 
why not just develop that good sergeant into a, into an inspector? Why, why, yeah. why, cut out the middleman, cut out the middleman, just develop that good sergeant, put their arm around them, development plan, mentor yeah. them, give them some support, yeah. and, and develop them into the inspector. Just, yeah. just stop, stop, yeah. and cut out the middleman. I think I think the, the bigger issue for me really is is um, that that you need to ensure that the organisation is one that guarantees that people see it as a long term career, regardless of whether you're a, um, a constable, a sergeant or a superintendent. Um, and, and currently that's not the case. Currently, we've got a, a package of terms and conditions of employment, pay and pensions. Um, uh, as well as all of the stresses and strains of doing the job, which feels it's becoming almost impossible, that virtually guarantees that people will leave with very, very young in service. Uh, yeah. So you, you look at those high end capabilities that we need around serious and organised crime, around counterterrorism, um, homicide investigation, those really serious and complex end of, of policing. Uh, you're just not going to have the, 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 the pool of people to, to pick to do those jobs uh, because you don't become a murder investigator overnight. You don't, you don't, you, you don't become a, uh, a serious and organized crime detective overnight. It takes many years of experience to do that. And my great fear is that we're gonna reach a point in sort of five or 10 years time where the, the pool of people to put into those jobs, it just isn't there, you know, so. No, I agree, totally agree. And um, I hear that um, direct entry detective is failing miserably well, the, the retention rates are miserable apparently they're, yeah. they're, um... i wouldn't wish it i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy frankly um you know if somebody came to yeah. me tomorrow and said i'm thinking of becoming a direct entry uh, detective i'd go well good luck with that you know yeah. um but listen shay it's been absolutely brilliant um chatting to you i've enjoyed every minute um i will hold you to that cameo role on the film please uh, do Please do, yeah. No, to, uh, if, you need, if you need a, if you need me to if you need me to mimic a um a clueless senior officer, I've, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been around enough over the years that I could I, I yeah. could do I think I could do that pretty well actually. So it's not, no, I, I'm sure we'll we'll speak again, Ian. I'm sure there's a role for you, mate. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Oh, fantastic. That'd be great. Listen, mate, you take care and um, you look after yourself, and uh, I look forward to meeting you face to face and we can uh, we can uh, talk bollocks together yeah definitely no i'd enjoy that mate take All care right. mate you take care speak. cheers and bye-bye if you enjoyed my podcast i'd be really grateful if you could go on apple podcasts if you use apple and give it a five-star review and maybe add a few words telling me what you like about it what you'd like to see more of or what you'd like to see less of if you use Spotify, you can give a five-star review. You can't write anything, but please give me a five-star review on Spotify. And if you've read my book and you've enjoyed it, can you please, please go on Amazon and review it and add some comments? I'd be really, really grateful. Finally, if you want to send me an email, you can do that um, via my website, which is www tjf book or one word tjfbook.com um, and i promise you i'll reply to you and finally if you want to join the tango juliet foxtrot facebook site you will find it funnily enough on facebook thanks ever so much bye
we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his feet. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>